guys, welcome back to another episode of the Chase the Unknown podcast. My name is Roger Sisk. I'm here with my co-host, Trinity Dobbs. Hey guys, how are you? And today on the podcast, we have Mr. Lucas Cantor, who's a composer out of the Los Angeles area. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Um, my name is Lucas Cantor. I'm a composer for film and television music, and I'm happy to be here talking to you guys. Oh, we appreciate you taking the time to come and talk to us. Yes, definitely. I know you probably have a super busy schedule, so we really appreciate it. Well, you know, like everyone during COVID, my schedule is a little bit easier, but I do have uh, two children under two oh, in wow. the house, so that, that makes it a little hectic. So, oh, totally. So it's great. How is that with with quarantine? It's the best. You know, they're they're wonderful, and they're young enough that this is the perfect time to have two young kids who can't leave the house. Um, it's a little hard to work at, for, in my home studio but you know it's worth it it's, it's fantastic. i can imagine it's understandable <laughs> yeah i think the trope is to complain about it right but it's actually <laughs> been great so yeah it's one of those things you know we just were sp- speaking a moment ago before we started the podcast you know of how we've had to kind of navigate um things in the midst of corona and this whole thing that's been going on the last eight, nine months, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, um, we thought it might be, oh, three months, four months, and it just kept on going. And the, the most frustrating thing about COVID for me has been just the uselessness of some of the lessons that I've learned. Mm -hmm. Um, like my wife and I, for example, about this time last year, prepaid for like, you know, eight or nine months of childcare. Right. Mm -hmm. And we got a great deal. And, our children, by the time this is over, will have outgrown the usefulness of that childcare that we paid for. And what have we learned from that? Nothing, because it was definitely the right thing to do at the time, because there probably wasn't going to be a global <laughs> pandemic when we made that decision. Right. Yeah. Um, right. Totally. So yeah, and and I've I've learned several lessons like that where like you know the answer is this is this lesson is only applicable in this one situation. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Would you mind going over a few things um, that you've done in your career just for our audience listening at home? Uh, yeah, no problem. Um, I'm uh, Sometimes I get a little embarrassed talking about myself, but I'll do my best. And um, my website, lucascantermusic.com, has a, a list of accomplishments that someone else put together. Um, <laughs> but I think my, my greatest hits uh, are I did a song... I did a cover of Everybody Wants to Rule the World with Lord in 2014, Ooh. and that ended up on the Hunger Games soundtrack. I um, recently finished Schubert's Unfinished Symphony with Artificial Intelligence, and wow. that wow. has been performed by orchestras all around the world. And uh, I actually had a little bit of a COVID success with a, um, a colleague of mine, Dan Martinez. We wrote the theme song for Major League Soccer on Fox, which is now airing and started in October. So that was a... Wow. A pandemic project we got to do. That's awesome. Um, That's so cool. That's thanks. Awesome. Yeah, so, I've, you know, I've, I've done some fun stuff. <laughs> that I've sounds been very like lucky. It. So let me ask you, what was it that made you want to become a composer? Well, that's a good question. Um, I got my degree in uh, jazz performance on the guitar, which is uh, seems like an unrelated field, uh, although it is still music. It's also, you know, probably. It's got to be in like a top 10 list of useless degrees, right? Um, <laughs> the, the only thing I'm qualified to do is like play jazz standards. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but playing jazz is, um, you know, improvising. And improvising is just mm-hmm. sort of composing in real time. And after I got my degree, I, I lived, I always lived, I grew up near New York City. And so I moved into the city after I graduated from college and started playing jazz gigs. And I got a job uh kind of randomly with the Olympics, uh, with NBC. And I started working in NBC's music department and helping to plug some of the music that goes into their sports programming. And Hmm. after a few years of doing that, I just realized, you know, I could write music like this. And so I started (laughs) writing music like that and they started using it. And I just, I just got, I just got deeper and deeper into it. And eventually some very smart people told me that if I wanted to be serious about composing and really learn from the best people, I needed to move to Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And uh, so never one to ignore the advice of my elders. I, mm. I basically just did that and uh, yeah. begged someone at Hans Zimmer studio for a job and they gave it to me. And uh, wow. that's where I learned pretty much everything I know about media music. 
Wow, that's that wow. not a, not everybody could say that that they they've, <laughs> they've had an opportunity like that. Yeah, that's that's awesome. So I've gotten some great opportunities, but I've also um, shamelessly begged people for favors. Hey, you, so you've got to do I it. The two go world. hand in hand. That's the thing. Like you're going to be put in situations where mm-hmm. you're going to have to do that. You know. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. This in, the entertainment industry. You sometimes you have to you have to do what you have to do to make it if you want to make it. Mm-hmm. So I mean. There's there's no shame in that, not mm. not if you're going. Yeah, I think for a that career. the. I think that the honorable flip side of it is to be able um, to be able and willing to grant people favors when they ask you. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, you know, I never say no to um, a random person who wants to call me and ask for advice or, you know, I mean, if I can help anyone out with anything within the bounds of reason and available time, I, I mm. will always do it. Yeah. Um, and that's that's true of most. Um, of most people out here that I, that I know, most of the composers and uh, musicians that I know, the the best ones and the most high profile ones and the most dare I say famous ones that I know are also the ones that are the most generous with their time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's and it, it's really interesting that you you would think it would be the opposite, but yeah, um, but yeah, the people who I've you know asked for advice or just you know mm-hmm. told them that I really admire them. Uh, usually we'll spend time to talk to you and get to know you and see if they yeah. can help you out. It's really an amazing That's incredible, community yeah. in that way. That's, yeah. That actually just, I don't know, that just warms my heart to know that, honestly, because yeah. you wouldn't think that, you know, people who, who do stuff like that would, would be that generous with their time mm-hmm. because you would think that they would be so busy that they wouldn't have the chance to. Yeah, and for me personally, one of the... Um, one of the goals for me personally, you know, is to when I achieve, whenever I achieve a certain level of success, or I've kind of stepped up, at least me, at least personally, when I feel like I've kind of stepped into a, a next level, a next realm, kind of a level up, you know, um, my go- my immediate next goal is to look back and not look down on people, but say, okay, what can I do to kind of give you a hand up, and what can I do? to be that resource and be that person for for other people yeah i completely agree there's there's plenty of room in um there's plenty of room to succeed you know in uh totally in music and in the entertainment business and there's plenty of room for everybody um Mm -hmm. and you know what we do is so ultimately personal Mm -hmm. that there's really no such thing as competition in a lot of ways Mm. you know if you're doing your thing and you're doing it honestly and with integrity and at the highest possible level you're the only one who can do that and some people will want that and they can only get it from you and some people won't want that Mm. and that's fine they weren't going to get anything from you anyway so um and to to say that um i just want to sort of make a a little clarification that um you know the people who are really busy and really successful excuse me who are generous with their time, they're generous with the time that they have. So mm-hmm. like, you know, if you called me and asked me for advice about um, writing music, I'd probably talk your ear off till you were blue, you know, till I was blue in the face and you were bored. <laughs> if you call John Williams, he'll probably talk to you for about, you know, three minutes. Yeah, yeah. Because that's how much time John Williams has and exactly. that's how much time I have. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so yeah. um, it's, it's, all, it's all relative. It's um, totally. Of course. But totally yeah. relative. But still, the, the fact that they're willing to take that, those, those three spare minutes that they mm-hmm. have and are willing to talk to, mm-hmm. you know, whoever, whoever mm-hmm. they feel like they need to talk to or whoever yeah. wants to talk to them, mm-hmm. that, to me, that just warms my heart. Yeah. I mean, it, it can change lives, you know. Totally, totally. Yeah, you, I mean, you never know what one thing can do to somebody else's life. Yeah. And one thing you just mentioned a moment ago, you know, um, when you said, you know, as long as there's really, you said there's really no such thing as competition in a way, um, which is, I think, is a really fascinating thought because, you know, especially in the entertainment industry, whether it's music, whether it's film, um, TV, whatever aspect it is um, in, the, in the entertainment industry, really, you know, it's, I feel like it's really seen as, a very competitive industry, you know, and it's very cut through and you, we have all these kind of ideas and notions in our head of what it is, um, inside the industry, you know, so a thought like that to me is really fascinating. Um, but like you said, at the end of the day, you know, as long as you're doing things with integrity and with honesty, you know, um, that's, that's one of the most important traits you can have, not only as from a business perspective, but as a creative, you know, mm-hmm. um, just as a side note, I was, um, listen, I was watching, um, Bob Iger's masterclass, um, here, I believe it was last week. 
and he mentioned that that's one that is one of his top things he looks for in people. He says, "Are they operating in integrity?" Because that is the one of the most important things you can have. Yeah, I agree. It's um, I mean, I would say that it's honesty, integrity, and also uh, the highest level of craftsmanship that's available to you. You know, totally. there's. Um, you know, you have to be doing it as well as you possibly can. That doesn't mean you have to be doing it as well as anybody can, totally. but you have to be doing it as well as you can with the resources available exactly. to you. And that's something and, we've you know, nobody. Good. Yeah. Well, one one of the things I you know I um, I one of the things I talk about with my my music uh, team is uh, like a like a mixing right. So mm -hmm. I, I finish a track, I get it as good as I can get it, and then I take it to a mixer who you know, does some alchemy to make it amazing. And one of the jokes that we have is, you know, uh, you know, a mix never saved a, saves a song. You know, you have to bring a good song to a mixer in order to let the mixer be able to mm -hmm. make it better. You know, you can't bring something that's half-baked and like, what am I trying to say? A bad idea, you can throw a lot of money at a bad idea and it's not going to make it better. Exactly, um, yeah. You can throw a little bit of money at a great idea and it's going to be good. Totally, totally. And that's no. actually something. Or like we, the Avengers, you can throw a lot of money at a great idea, and it'll be the Avengers. <laughs> it'll be the Avengers, you know. It'll be a blockbuster. Yeah. Uh -huh. It'll make over a billion dollars, you know. It'll be the. Oh, I could spend hours talking about the Avengers. So. Oh yeah, Trinity over here is a huge Marvel fan. <laughs> We've actually talked about that on this podcast in the past, you know. In a way, ex excellence is relative, you know. What is your excellence? You know, your my excellence at this moment with my the knowledge set that I have and the. Um, get the abilities that I have at the moment, you know, is totally different than say, you know, to use that example, Marvel, you know, a Marvel film, you know, we're, you know, are they're both, I I feel like they're both considered excellent, um, but it's at two different and totally different levels. Yeah, I mean, you don't need a billion dollars to tell a story with mm -hmm. a film. Um, and, you know, even even the Avengers movies, if you if you cut their budget, if you made, I mean, well, to use a perfect example, if you made their film budget zero and just made them comic books, they're already amazing. Yeah, totally. um, So great. it makes perfect sense to um, to throw a bunch of money at a property like that where where you know, the you know that the story is there, and that's mm -hmm. that's really the the essence of what you know people call it the entertainment business or the uh, the music business or you know you can call it what you like, but really it's the story business. Yeah, and mm, that's so good. Whatever um, whatever we're selling. Uh, or whatever we think we're selling, what we're selling is a narrative. And if you're a uh, if you're a composer like me, um, you're helping someone who is making a film tell a story with that film. Uh, if you're an artist and you're writing songs on your own, you're writing songs and you're selling the songs, but you're also selling the story of who you are and why you're writing those songs. And that's what people are buying, and that's why people are listening. Because ultimately, anybody can make a piece of music. Anybody can today especially can take their iPhone and shoot some video mm -hmm. but um, what are you saying with that medium is yeah. way more important than um, than the medium itself and and even you know some of the bells and whistles um, you can as we've all seen you know you can spend a lot of money on a movie with a terrible story and it's still a terrible movie or you can spend not that much money on a movie with a great story and it's very compelling yeah totally totally going back a little bit to um back to kind of your journey with music was that something was music something that was always a part of your life growing up was it something that it was always a passion of yours or you kind of <coughs> you kind of had other ideas when you were growing up in terms of what you wanted to do for a living or what you what you really enjoyed doing and then you kind of as you grew your dreams and thoughts kind of changed and you kind of had a moment of oh well i'm actually i i feel like i'm actually really passionate about music let me try and pursue that so you know there's this great book called range by david epstein which has um he begins the book with a parable, uh, I think he calls the chapter, the parable of Tiger and Roger, or something like that. And it's about the difference in the way that Tiger Woods grew up and the way that Roger Federer grew up. And Tiger Woods grew up basically from the age of 18 months, he was being groomed to be a uh, golf star and was already playing 18 holes and, you know, shooting par at, you know, age seven or something like that. And Roger Federer, uh, the tennis player, his mother was a tennis coach, but he wasn't really encouraged to play tennis. He was, he did a bunch of other sports. He did a bunch of other things. And when he was, uh, you know, maybe a preteen, he took up tennis and he really enjoyed it. And they, you know, they encouraged him in it, but nobody ever pushed him to do it. And both of these men ended up 
reaching the very, very top of their fields. I think, you know, their success is well known. Uh, and so I am of the Roger Federer school where I was never really pushed to play music. I was not one of those kids who was performing music at a high level at a, at a young age. Um, and I really, I got, I got, I started playing guitar when I was 14 and I didn't, I took it seriously pretty immediately, but by the time I had gotten to college, I'd only been playing for about five years, four years. Uh, and I was up against, um, people who had been playing for 10 or 15 years. And ultimately, you know, it evens out. You, I practiced a lot. I think I probably practiced more than a lot of my classmates. And at the end of four years of college, I was on par with some of them. And some of them are just phenomenal musicians that I never was going to be on par with, you know? And so, um, but I've always had the, I've always had the luxury of being able to follow my passions without, um, without too much pressure from, uh, from the people in my life system, my, my, uh, parents and now my, my family that I've created. Um, and that's, that's just sort of how I view it. You know, I, I think that you should just do what you want. Uh, yeah. And if one of my children turns out to be a prodigy, I'm going to probably, you know, if, if what, um, I have two sons, Jude and Coltrane. And if, you know, if Jude decides he loves the violin uh, and wants to become a concert violinist, I'll, I'll certainly help him do that. But if he, if he doesn't, I'm not going to force him to practice. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Yeah, that's, that's kind of how I grew up the same way. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't really pushed into um, acting and, and writing and all that stuff, but I wasn't like steered away from it either. I kind of grew up in that same same room totally. like you, and it's kind of nice to where you can figure out who you are mm -hmm. and what you like, and then you go after yeah. that because of the passion that you have, not because somebody pu pushed and forced you into something that you didn't even really enjoy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I don't think that makes anyone happy. <laughs> no, it do it no. doesn't. It doesn't. I've seen. Uh, people that have been forced to do something that they don't want to do and you can tell that they don't want to do it but they're just naturally good at it and mm -hmm. that's why they're being pushed into it because yeah because their parents want them to do it or oh, something yeah. like that it's the cliche hallmark movie we've all seen you know where <laughs> the, the 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 parent is pushing the kid to be a football star or a, um, a, a musician or whatever it is and that's not really what they want because they want to go off to be an artist or whatever it is you know in a way it's high school musical you know <laughs> Well, you know, there's another side to that story, though. Um, if you think about the life of uh, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, um, his father really pushed him into mm. performing music, and he was performing for kings and queens around Europe when he was four years old, and I, I think he wrote his first symphony when he was like seven or eight, something ridiculous yeah. like that. And it's, uh, you know, Mozart's first symphony is, it's not great, but like, it's good. I mean, it's a yeah. good symphony, yeah. and it was written by a child. And... Uh -huh. um, but there's, there's, uh, I think there's an argument to be made that, that Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart had such a singular talent that the gift that he was able to give to humanity and to music in general was more important than his personal happiness. Mm. I don't know. That's an, you know that's, that, yeah, that's an interesting, interesting thought. Yeah. Go ahead and let that soak in for a minute. That's, <laughs> that's really, that's, that's a deep thought right there. Yeah. It's, I know. I'm like... You wouldn't think like that, but I mean, if you can spot the talent at that young of an age, I mean, it makes it makes sense. He put his art over and over his everything own else. His personal happiness, yeah. Yeah, opposed to his. I his mean, his life. life ultimately. I mean, he yeah. he died. He died in, in his thirties, um, mm -hmm. having completed a body of work that, mm -hmm. you know, me given another thirty years, I won't even come close to touching. Yeah, you know, and. Yeah. Um, and uh, but you know, is there is there a level of responsibility that he that he had to humanity? And there there are certain geniuses, you know, even among us that are that I think fall fall into that category where you know their gifts are just too important for the species mm -hmm. and for our culture. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yes. Other and just speaking of that, of you know, people that we in a way look, <coughs> excuse me, look up to, you know, other than the obvious people, you know, like John Williams, you know, um, th these people that have really are well known and have a really lasting impact on the world. You know, is, are there um, musicians and composers out there that you really personally look up to? Yeah, I, I admire like everyone, basically. <laughs> I think anyone who's <laughs> making a living uh, doing art is a, is a hero, yeah. and I love just hearing about how they do it and seeing what they do. And I'm going to um, 
instead of answering your question, I'm going to answer a different question, but I promise they're related. Go for um, it. Which is that the best thing that I have ever done, uh, the best thing that I've ever done, I did recently about three weeks ago, and that was go through all of my friends' music. I just, you know, I had some time and I went on Spotify and, I'm, and I looked through all of my friends' albums and the soundtracks they'd released and just, you know, people that I know either intimately or peripherally mm -hmm. or um, friends of friends and mm -hmm. listening to all this stuff and listening to what my contemporaries and um, my, my buddies are up to was so inspiring and so amazing. There's, there's, there's more good music available today than there ever has been in the past. And mm. there are more talented people able to create more music that is um, disseminated around the world um, than there ever have been. And yeah. so it's it's hard to pinpoint, it's hard mm. to pinpoint one yeah. person who, I mean, I, mm. I have some influences. I could give you the standard answer of, mm -hmm. you know, the album that changed my life was probably Wes Montgomery's Boss Guitar and um, Miles Davis's Relaxin' with the Miles Davis Quintet, which were given to me at the same time. But but since then, it's uh, I find inspiration daily in the work of my contemporaries. Mm, that's so good. It, it's really, it's really in a crazy world out there. Like you said, you know, it's technology has gotten to the point now where not only even not only to use the example, you know, of um, the fact of oh, people can grab their iPhones and make short films now, or in the music context, you know, there are kids nowadays who are like tomorrow's composers that are making stuff in their bedrooms and throwing it on Spotify, you know? Um, and they're able to kind of gain, a, gain an audience there. They're throwing it on Spotify. They're throwing it on TikTok. It's, it's really incredible, honestly. It's fascinating. Well, think about this. I could, um, tomorrow morning, I could... Uh, 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 Trinity, do you sing by any chance? Uh, I try. Does that well, count? Well, okay, let's, let's, let's say yes for the purposes of this demonstration. Okay. So All right. okay. I could tomorrow morning wake up and write a song and send it digitally to you, Trinity, um, right after breakfast, and you could sing on it, send it back to me. I could mix it and post it, and someone in Taiwan could be listening to it on their earbuds before lunch. And we take that capability completely for granted as if totally. it was just nothing. And 20 years ago, that didn't exist. It was inconceivable. Yeah. yeah. That, that's completely um, insane that somebody could be listening to it in Taiwan by lunch tomorrow. Yeah. It's listening to your master that you recorded in Georgia. <laughs> it's really incredible. The fact, like you said, you know, it, it's something that we totally, it's so mind boggling, astounding, but at the same time, we don't take a second. I think a lot of time nowadays to kind of step back and go, Whoa, like this is a huge deal. Like this is incredible that we have this, uh, this technology available to us now. Yeah, it's um. I mean, I'll paraphrase Ray Kurzweil, the great um, futurist and uh, uh, synth synthesizer builder, among many other things. But one of the things that he talks mm. about is that good technology is useful, but great technology is invisible. Mm. Um, it mm. becomes such a part of the fabric of our life and our everyday experience that we don't even notice it anymore. Mm. Yeah. Man, that's... Uh... I'm still blown by the fact that <laughs> I could make a song tomorrow. You and have it, blown her it mind officially. It would be well. I, well, it's not. Uh, how do I explain this? Like I'm not like it's just it's a it's something I don't think about. That's the way to word it. It's just not something like I would have thought that somebody in Taiwan would be listening to a song that I made in my bedroom, you know, tonight or tomorrow morning. And then they'll be listening to it by the end of the day tomorrow. That's. You know, just completely... It's amazing to think about, right? It is, because, you know, you just don't realize the power of mm -hmm. of social media and the internet mm -hmm. and the technology that we have. It's, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I mean, I grew up in, you know, I was born in 93, so I, you know, grew up in the early 2000s, and YouTube didn't even come out until 2007. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the internet didn't even come out until the late yeah. 90s. So, so, I'm just it, it kind of like blows my mind to think of how far it's come in such a, a short time frame. Totally. It's incredible. Well, think about this. This is, this is another, um, so uh, th the reason this is on my mind is I've, I'm working on a book about um, art, like technology and the arts. And I was, uh, I was slaving over um, part of the introduction today. And so this is just sort of fresh in my, in my brain. But um, so 40,000 years ago, we'll, uh, <coughs> we'll go back to the beginning. 40,000 years ago in a cave in Germany, one of our human ancestors made a flute out of a mammoth bone. Um, and 
presumably used it to play music. We, you know, obviously we don't know exactly what they did with it, but it looks like a flute. It can make sound. We assume that's what they did with it. 38,000 years later, someone figured out how to write those sounds down. So that was the technological innovation that happened. It took 38,000 years to go from making music with instruments to figuring out how to write it down. Um, only a thousand years after that, we figured out how to print it and disseminate it very widely. So it was before the printing press, music was really a local only phenomenon. But with the printing press, you could take music and move it to another country very easily. Mm -hmm. And 400 years after that, we figured out how to capture the sound of music, the actual sound on the phonograph recording. Only a hundred years after that, we figured out how to capture that sound and disseminate it digitally, maybe 150 years after that, and disseminate it digitally. And so we've gone from every innovation in music has um, served to either help someone make music faster or to distribute, distribute music wider to help more people hear it. And in some cases, the musical tools do both of those things. But we've kind of reached the, the terminus of that evolution. We can now make mm. music about as fast as we can conceive it, and we can distribute it to everyone on the planet instantly. That's incredible. So, yeah. so what's next? Yeah. yeah. What uh, is next? That is a good question. Yeah, that, I mean, that, honestly, that would be the next question is what is next? Because I, I can't, of course, I didn't think that TikTok was going to stay, but, you know, there's a, <laughs> we won't even get into that, but... I'm I'm an old soul, so I kind of like saw that. <laughs> you are, Trinity. I really am. I'm an old you are, soul. You are an old soul. So <laughs> I might be 20, 27, mm. but I'm an old soul. Anyway, mm. you it, know, yeah. I just don't see how, I, I can't see that far ahead, I guess. Like I can see like big pictures, like I could organize like some type of huge event in th like three years from now, but I can't see what tomorrow is going to bring. And that, so for, you know, something to like an overnight sensation like that, it just always fascinates me with how quickly everything just happens. You know, like... Yeah, it I makes mean, you wonder what is what is actually solid under you know? your feet, you know? Yeah. Exactly. Because so much is changing so fast mm -hmm. that it's uh, mm -hmm. the things that we take for granted yeah. today totally. might not even exist tomorrow yeah. morning. Yeah. <laughs> well, like, we could, yeah. we could even use this. This is probably going to be uh, an interesting analogy, but... If YouTube didn't come out in 2007, we would not have Justin Bieber to this day because Justin That's Bieber was an point. overnight sensation from YouTube. So, well, like you could you could go the other way and say that if Justin, I mean cuz Justin Bieber also really brought a lot of attention to that platform. Exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, you know, it could be that without Justin Bieber, YouTube never would have caught off, Google never would have bought yeah. it and it would have died by now. That's, That's I mean that's true too. Thought. So, I mean we would so, I mean, we have, yeah. you know, it's just how, how everything intertwines is just completely How everything connects, how everything happens. I was actually about to bring up the fact that you actually presented a TEDx talk where you talked about what artificial intelligence taught you about music, which just that line of thinking is incredible to me. Uh, thank you. Um, <laughs> that's, that's what I'm working on. That's what I'm writing my book about. So yeah. um, I'm, glad, I'm glad that it sounds fascinating. <laughs> I, I'm in the middle of it. So to me, I'm, I'm like, I'm so buried in it that <laughs> oh, yeah. it's, hard to, it's hard to remember if it was a good idea or not. I, I, I think it's definitely, it's, it's a spin on something that I've, I've never heard before, which is surprising to me. In, in 1949, Professor Jeffrey Jefferson gave a, uh, a lecture in Manchester when he won the the Lister Medal, which is a you know great prize in science, I call it Jeffrey Jefferson's Lister Lecture, and um, say that five times fast. In his <laughs> in his lecture, he um, he talks about how uh, a machine can never truly equal a brain, and mm -hmm. how uh, you know a computer could never could never come up with all of the you know complex feelings that a that a human could. Um, and the reason that he gave this sort of impassioned lecture that was really kind of off of his area of expertise was because uh, just a few weeks before that, the Manchester Mark I, which is a stored, the first store, stored program computer, had mm -hmm. executed a mathematical program that was previously thought to be impossible. And some reporter, it's, it's a program, incidentally, that your iPhone can do now, but um, mm -hmm. it was previously thought to be impossible. And <clears throat> a reporter referred to the Manchester Mark I as an electronic brain. And this set off a firestorm, right? I mean, just the idea that an electronic brain was possible just mm -hmm. blew people's minds. Today, it's like so banal that an editor wouldn't even let you publish it because um, mm -hmm. it's just like a cliche. And when I was, um, when I was working on the Schubert Unfinished Symphony, 
we premiered it in London, um, you know, not more than 20 or 30 miles away from where Jefferson had given that lecture 60 mm. years ago, 70 years ago. And the questions that I got from reporters were not about anything technical. They just assumed that a computer could write music. They, all they wanted to know was, what does it mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the question I got yeah. the most off is, you know, what does it mean that a computer can write music? And I think I came up with some, you know, some okay explanations, but I realized that th that really was the most important question. Um, whether or not you could figure out, whether or not computers had sufficient power to create music that, you know, at least registered as music was that that question has been asked and answered. Mm -hmm. And um, what do we do with this technology and what does it mean for us and what does it mean about music and what does it say mm -hmm. about the way that our brains work? Yeah. Where did this interest in kind of fusing technology and um, artificial intelligence <coughs> and music come from? This idea that you're kind of now writing this book around. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I wish I had a better story. Um, you know, I think that the the story that everybody wants to hear is that from a young age, I was really into computers and I was really into technology and I was also really into music and you know, I, the story of my life had been leading to this point, but that's, that's really just not true. I, I didn't even have an email address until I got a corporate job, uh, in my, in my twenties. And what really happened was I just met, I, I was already a professional composer and I had m just met some interesting people who were working on musical computer science problems. And I, I really just liked them as individuals and liked mm -hmm. hanging out with them. And when I went to London, I would, you know, talk to them about music and um, one of them, uh, a scientist named uh, Dr. Mick Goodrick, got a um, no, sorry, Mick Goodrick is a drummer. Uh, Mick <laughs> <Pearson>. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know what? I've, I've like so I did I did like hundreds of interviews about the Unfinished Symphony, and my biggest fear was doing exactly what I just did and calling Mick Grierson Mick Goodrick, and I haven't done it until today. So um, okay, well, we don't edit it out. I think it's fine. No, no, don't edit it. It's 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 okay. all good. Okay. Um, he'll he'll get a kick out of it if he hears this. Um, you know, but Mick Grierson, uh, he had this idea of using um, artificial intelligence to finish Schubert's Unfinished Symphony, and it was something that he and I talked about a lot and I always assumed that it was going to be a thing that we you know kind of mocked up digitally and played for some grad students while we drank some beers um, but then uh, Huawei the international technology company got involved and said hey can you do this with one of our phones and if you can do it with our phone we will produce it I mean you know just tell us what you want to do and we will do mm -hmm. it um, and it was a big uh, it was a big PR campaign a marketing campaign for them and they're like you know, they're the best kind of client or creative partner that you could possibly ask for. They just basically said, you're the expert. Tell us how much we need to spend to make this a great event. Mm. Um, and, and so, so um, it was sort of, it was a combination of, um, I, I just, I met people who were really interested in computers. I was really interested in music. They were interested in uh, the intersection between composers and artificial intelligence and we did a project together and doing that project is really what sparked my interest in the subject mm -hmm. wow interesting That's, it's interesting that you mentioned you know it wasn't this big crazy story of growing up and always being interested in technology and that led me to this you know um i feel like a lot of times in society we we feel like we have to have this big grandiose story about um especially when we're talking about you know chasing your dreams and all these things you know it, people think they have to have this big grandiose story of how they got there you know when in reality it's it's that it's the fact that you got there that's important you know um at the end of the day being okay with the fact that you don't have to have this huge extravagant story yeah and it's it's the lens that you use right totally. i mean for a podcast like yours where we're trying to i mean i believe that i'm speaking to you know people who are who are sort of interested in the reality of uh, of a life in the arts, and mm -hmm. and I'm not speaking to like a general audience, um, and I, so I, I kind of you know I want to give it to them straight. Like I, totally. I think if you're an artist and you're and you're working on something that is that you're passionate about and you're not sure where it's going to lead, that's fine. It's going to lead somewhere. If you mm -hmm. keep doing good work, it's going to lead somewhere. And and I couldn't have if you had interviewed me uh, three years ago, I would not have been able to predict that I was going to finish Schubert's Unfinished Symphony with artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. And if you had told me I was going to, I would have thought you were crazy. Wow. Um, but, but, you know, the other way to, to paint that story is, of course, I've always been interested in technology. I grew up, mm -hmm. I was, um, 
So I'm a little older than you guys. I was born in 1980. So I've, I have like one foot on either side of the internet where like mm -hmm. I completely remember a world in which every communication was conducted on a like hardwired phone. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, oh, yeah. Um, and where, <clears throat> you know, like, I mean, I remember when faxes became widely available. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, man. Uh, and before before the fax machine, you know, if you wanted to get a written document from one place to another, a human person had to carry it. Yeah. That was the only way to do it. Yeah. Back um, in the Pony Express days, you know? Yeah. Stay right, but now it's completely different. And yeah. I, I'm, I'm young enough that I sort of evolved with it, you know? And, and yeah. um, so so on the, on the one hand, yeah, it was never something I thought about. On the other mm -hmm. hand, it was such an important piece of the fabric of my life that, of course, I thought about it constantly. Mm -hmm. Um if that makes any sense. Yeah, totally, no, no, totally. it makes complete sense. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's it's fascinating to be, you know, in in our generation to where we you know we you know remember, you know, before and, you know, after to kind of see how it's changed so much and just in the short span of our lives. You know, I mean, I mean, I've got I'm, like I said before, I was I'm 27, you know, just to watch in the 27 years that I've been alive just to watch how everything has just changed so drastically because I remember growing up in, you know, the the late 90s and, you know, we had the big giant brick cordless phones and we had landlines and you mentioned a landline today and people look at you like you're crazy. So, <laughs> yeah. you know. I, I have a funny story around that. It's um, um, my sister, she's um, now in her 40s and um, she, and so naturally, you know, she's, um, She's giving my parents grandkids and such. I remember one day um, they were visiting, and one of them walked over to. We still had a cord in our house growing up. We still had a we still had a cord corded phone on the wall, um, and one of the grandchildren walked up to it and said, "Grandma, what's this?" <laughs> and it's like you know that 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 next generation uh, that next generation you know doesn't know what a corded phone is, you know. As opposed, you know, our generation was just on the tail end there, where you know we used them, we grew, we grew up using them. You know, it's yeah. the, it's gonna it's really interesting to think about. You know, two generations down the line, they're gonna be like, are they gonna be like hold up a computer and go, what's this? You know, what you never know. Technology keeps evolving so fast. Well, part of the reason that I'm writing my book is that um, it's also very conceivable that that generation will hear the description of um, what a composer's job was and say, what was that? Mm. Why, why would someone need to write music when music can be generated in real time by computers? And it's amazing. Mm. Um, yeah. And, and the, you know, at, that, at the point that that happens, we will have lost some of the 40,000 years of knowledge that we've gained mm. um, since the time of that bone flute. And yeah. we will have lost it irreparably. Um, and we're we're going headlong into these technological changes yeah. without, without really giving it too much thought. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, progress is an ever changing covenant and we are, we are, mm -hmm. you always give up something when, when you gain something else with technology. And, you know, it used to be that, like I said, that the, um, that the technology around music was there to amplify human effort. But today mm -hmm. progress is, defined as the creation of music independent of human effort. Yeah. And that's fundamentally different. It's, it's, not, it's not the same path anymore. Mm -hmm. um, but we as humans, you know, just sort of like the way that I described my story, we have a tendency to think of things having happened historically and, and inevitably in straight lines, when in reality, they don't. We just decide to narrativize them after the fact. And, mm. you know, the, pro the, the switch from creating systems to amplify human music to creating mm -hmm. systems that create music in lieu of humans is not at all linear or logical, but we mm. view it as progress. Um, yeah. 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 Wow. That's incredible. That's incredible. Well, as we're, we're getting ready to wrap up here, um, we want to do our absolute best to not only honor and value your time, but um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It was a it was a great um, great conversation, really fascinating one. Yeah, uh, we do have one more question for you, though, yep. if you don't mind. <laughs> sure, of course. So, um, we you know on this podcast we tend to encourage uh, people to follow their dreams, and we ask each one of our guests 
what piece of advice would you give to somebody who is interested in music or composing music or honestly in general just following their dreams? Well, uh, I guess that would be two. I'm, th- that's kind of two different types of advice, right? Because I can give someone who's yeah. interested in a career in music very specific and actionable mm-hmm. advice. Mm-hmm. Um, someone who wants to follow their dreams. I mean, if you want to follow your dreams, you should follow your dreams. I don't know what else to... What else, it's, it's hard yeah. to know without um, exactly. the specificity of what those dreams are. Yeah. Right. And I mean, also, I don't know, maybe you should ask one of your friends, what because if your dream is to, you know, rule over the nation with an iron fist, maybe <laughs> don't follow that dream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, totally, but, fair um, enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like just in uh, total practicality, you know, if, if someone's wanting to pursue a, a career in music and in composing, what, what are some of those practical steps they can take to pursue that? Well, you can know if a career in music is going to be right for you um, by uh, assessing whether or not you like listening to music. If you love listening to music, it might be a good fit for you. Um, so the first piece of advice I would give to someone who, who wants to be a professional musician is listen to a lot of music, listen to as much different music as you possibly can, and try to understand how it works. Uh, the other piece of advice I would give to someone, especially people who don't live in great music cities, um, is that there are, there are many ways to make a living as a musician. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that people think is that either you know, your options are to become a high school band director, a church worship leader, or Beyonce. And those are the only three ways to make a living. And um, there, are, there are, I have scores of friends who make six-figure incomes doing things that most people don't even know is a job. So mm, yeah. you just have to, um, if you want to be a professional musician, and, and this, this advice might not even be true 10 years from now, but as of right now, you need to go to one of the great music centers of the world, which um, for English speakers is Los Angeles, Nashville, uh, New York, London, Berlin, and maybe, uh, you know, Atlanta's coming up, depending on the style of music that, yeah. you, that you're into. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you need to go to one of those places because there are... Um, you know, not because cities are inherently better than rural life. It's just because there are people in cities who know stuff that you need to know. Yeah, totally. And the best way to learn it from them is to just sit next to them and watch them do it. It's to be and in the room with them. you'll get that opportunity more if you're closer to them. Yeah, yep. totally. Be in the room with them. Yeah, and it, it might be that, um, especially after COVID, that being in a room with someone virtually is preferred in the future, mm-hmm. in which case all you need to do is make sure that you're virtually in the room with those people and you can live wherever yeah. you like. Um, just, but you need to be a, but you need to be around them is my point. Yeah, you you need to be around that environment. You need to be around those people that you can learn and grow with and from. Yeah. Yeah, and I I know you guys are filmmakers. Like how much did you learn? I mean, you probably had some academic idea of how to make a film before you made your first film. But I bet you learned more from making the film than you mm. did in the previous years of studying how to make a film. Totally. Oh, abso- absolutely. We totally. Totally, yeah. Just to give me give a little backstory on myself really fast. Um, you know, grew up always knew production was a thing I wanted to do, but didn't know completely what that entailed or what that looked like. You know, um, and so I just grew up experimenting, learning through trial and error. You know, finding people. Um, as I grew up, it became more common. But as I kind of learned lessons and learned that it was okay that other people knew more than me and that I needed to learn from other people. Um, but as I did start surrounding myself with people that um, who could teach me and I could learn from, um, in that combination, you know, um, I learned a lot. Um, fast forward to late teens, graduated high school, all that. Um, decided to go to a formal film school, get some, like, a formal education. And um, I kind of find out, found out that, in a way, I learned more from my back history of just being around people, um, I learned more in that regard. Now, I'm not saying film school is bad or don't go get a formal education, but I just thought that was a fascinating observation. Yeah, I think that's a, a pretty, um, that's a common experience. And one of the things that I really love about what you just said is that you didn't really know like what production was. It just seemed like a thing that you really wanted to do. Yeah. And <clears throat> I, ha- I had the exact same experience with film music. I, I just vaguely knew that there was music in movies mm-hmm. and that is Hollywood is where they did it. And so yeah. I just went there and I, yeah. and I, I so I, I guess that's a, that's a piece of advice um, for anyone following their dreams is to really just follow your intuition. Yeah. 
you know, because so um, sometimes that's all you have to go on and, and it'll lead you, it'll lead you somewhere. Um, and Trinity, can I ask you a question? Absolutely. What's your favorite Marvel movie? <laughs> <laughs> that is a loaded question. I knew you were going to say that. But, um, uh, my favorite movie would have to be, um, oh gosh, uh, I want to say like Infinity War. Um, I just, Infinity of War and Game, one of, one of the two. One I, of the two big ones. One of the two big ones. Well, just, there is just, honestly, it's for me, it's, I love the the unity of the two. You know how you can get well. They, they when 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 they when they all comes together, the whole yeah, the mm. anticlimactic. It all came together. All right, so, so I'm I'm with you on I, I'm I'm like two thirds in agreement with you here. I think Endgame. <laughs> uh, sorry, I think Infinity War is a fantastic film. Kind of no matter who you are and no matter what investment you have in the franchise, it it's mm-hmm. you know it's it's really got a lot going for it. I think Endgame is a little bit more of a fan gift than a movie. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's got some it's got some sort of unexplained time travel in it and it's yeah. it, there, there's just, you know, it's hard they did as good a job as you can do making a movie with 37 stars in it. Totally. Um, I, I agree. You know, it's like a hey, it's Yeah, it's like we are the world, you know. It's yeah. like everyone can yeah. only sing one yeah. line, yeah. you know. Yeah. Hey, um, it's got it's got the most expensive shot in movie history in it, so. It does. <laughs> What was the most expensive shot in movie history? So the most expensive shot in movie history is at Tony Stark's funeral when all the main characters are there. I'm outside the cabin. So it's every single um, superhero is there. Yeah, it's like the, the GDP of Sweden. Mm. That, w- that was a one take, so that's why it was so expensive. They couldn't break huh. it up. Yeah. Oh, wow, yeah. They couldn't. It, normally, so, like they would with a battle sequence, you know, they would, they would break it up into chunks and say, okay... You, this group of people come in this day. This group of people come in this week. You know, uh, but with this situation, they had no other option but to get everyone there on the exact same day. So, oh man, that'd I feel be so a bad. logistical Can you imagine? Nightmare. They must have had to hire like seven extra second ads. <laughs> I know, know right? <laughs> there's got to be like one per star, right? Yeah, um, more than likely, <laughs> yeah. it's. Can yeah. you imagine? I mean, and and then I mean, you know, all of the superheroes are in that movie, but but go ahead and continue about Spider Man. Continue. So Spider-Man Homecoming, I, and I, I like, so I have a different pick for top Marvel movie, but Spider-Man Homecoming is definitely in my top five. And the reason is two reasons. First of all, three reasons. One, I'm from New York. Two, I love Spider-Man. I just always have loved Spider-Man. He was the hero that I just identified the most with as a kid. Mm-hmm. And three, if you took the script of that movie, took out all the superpowers and made it about a kid who plays football in Kansas and kept everything else about it the same, it would have still been a fantastic movie. Mm-hmm. It's it's just such a good story. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the like the relationship between the hero and the villain. I don't want I mean, I know it's been out for years, but I still don't want to spoil it if people haven't seen it. The relationship between <laughs> yeah. the hero and the villain is so interesting and dynamic. Mm-hmm. And if you don't like Marvel movies and you're only gonna watch one, that's definitely one yeah. to start yeah. with. Yeah. Um, if you do like Marvel movies, though, the best one is definitely Thor Ragnarok. Come on. I was actually was just going to mention that. I was going to say, since we're ta- yeah. on the topic of Marvel, you know, let's talk about Thor, Thor Ragnarok, Ragnarok. Because, you know, I, I think the, re- the reason why I feel like that movie is so special is because it had something I feel like... I don't want to go on the limb and say a movie that... I don't want to go on the limb and say that it had something that no other movie did, but it had something very important, which was stakes. They took a character that was, in all essence, flopping. Um, you know, if you look back in at the other Thor films, you know, not really well, great, accepted. You know, uh, you know, you had the whole Thor: The Dark World situation going on, where it was. It's. I mean, no one puts it very t- high on their list. You know, it's. Um, but it was very much a. <laughs> yeah, it's it's flopping, a movie. Yeah, it was a very much <laughs> flopping franchise as far as the Thor movies go, you know, and they came out and made a, took a huge risk. They came out and took a huge calculated risk and it massively paid off. And that's why everyone loves Thor now is because they were willing to take that risk narratively. That's fantastic. I actually never thought of that. I just, you're, you're right that, I mean, Thor Dark World is a movie that I, I guess I saw. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm also, I'm pretty sure I saw Iron Man 3 you know, yeah. but I, I yeah. couldn't tell you much about yeah. it. Yeah. But um, I'll tell you a story. A friend of mine worked on the on the music for that movie. Um, I think he was the mixer or something. And one of the s- things that he told me was, so you know that big battle scene, uh, the, the the opening scene basically mm-hmm. where Thor oh. is you know fighting these aliens with a hammer oh, yes. and they're playing 
yes. Led Zeppelin's immigrant song yes. is, is the music there. Now that was originally that was what the director the director sort of mocked up that scene and showed it to the studio as a like a trailer for his aver- mm-hmm. vision of the film. Yeah. And he had that music in there and they showed it to the composer, Mark Mothersbaugh, and said, yeah, can you do something that's, you know, like this, but we don't want to license this crazy expensive Led Zeppelin song. And uh, Mothersbaugh being, you know, the, of the stature that he is, he can get away with this. But he said, no, like you can't, I can't do something better than this. Like you need to just license that song. It's mm-hmm. the perfect thing. The yeah. movie's about immigrants. It's immigrant song. And yeah. it is like, you know, I can't make something cooler than this in this scene mm-hmm. that you like, you know, you cut this scene to yeah. this song. And, um, and so they used the song, they licensed it, which was absolutely the right decision because it totally. just makes it so cool. Oh, oh totally. Yeah. You know, in, in, in awesome. a way it's, at least in my head, those two are now forever tied together in a way, you know, I think, you know, when you, when you think of Thor Ragnarok, you think of immigrants now, you know, it's, but mm-hmm. I, I love that opening scene though, you know, oh, I know what you're thinking. Oh no, Thor's in a cage. How's he going to get out of this one? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> now I know what you're thinking. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, it's, but uh, it's a it's it is a fantastic movie. Yes. yes. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Lucas, for coming on the podcast today. It was a it was a wonderful conversation. Yeah, it was really great to meet you. Yeah, guys, it was my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, and uh, I love the podcast, and uh, I look forward to to hearing the episode. Of course, right. yeah. Thank you yeah, so thank you so much for your your hour here or so in the evening, and I hope you have a good rest of your evening there. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And again, as always, thank you guys for joining us again this week. We'll be back at you next Wednesday to wrap up season two of Chase the Unknown. I can't believe we're here already. We're already almost at the end of season two. It's incredible. Um, But we'll be back at you next Wednesday. Thank you so much for joining us. If you haven't followed us yet on social media, we are at Right Time Productions across everything. Um, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Go ahead and check those out. We'll be starting to put some of these season two episodes up on YouTube shortly. So make sure you go ahead and check that out. And until next time, go and chase your unknown.